hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hook segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks. We're going to hop, skip and jump our way into today's episode where we're kicking it back old school, where Carly and Cece will be discussing the same three query letters and, you know, being in conversation about that. Carly, why don't you start us off with the first one? Here we go. A storm, a shipwreck, a baby girl washes ashore into the arms of a man waiting in the surf. The fate of an Irish immigrant family rests with the child he holds. Dear Bianca, Carly, and Cece, I've been in the query trenches for three months and received four manuscript requests, three full, one partial, which I attribute to the brilliant advice of the Books with Hooks segment of this fantastic podcast. But I know I can continue sharpening my materials. I've indicated this is for Carly because historical fiction is in her wheelhouse, but if flexibility is helpful, I would be equally pleased to be critiqued by Cece or a guest 
to agent. As a side note, I queried Carly early in the process and another PS literary agent is one of the four who requested my pages. I believe you mentioned in a previous episode that queries to PS literary agents does not preclude submission for their critique on your podcast, but I will certainly understand if this disqualified me. If not, I'd be honored to tell you about my book. Web of Legacies is a 118,000 word historical fiction with a hint of magical realism, an upmarket book club essence, and subtle neurodiversity undertones. It will appeal to fans of multi-generational drama infused with immersive historical elements and populated by strong female protagonists a la Gassi's Homegoing and Garcia's Of Women in Salt. Like Lee's Pachinko, this family saga unfolds in a series of stories. The first is inspired by a true event. On a cold October morning in 1849, off coastal Massachusetts, a nor'easter ravaged the Irish famine ship, the St. John. Captain and crew abandoned the brig, leaving passengers to perish. Most did. But at dusk, an infant girl washed ashore into the arms of a man pulling wreckage and bodies from the surf. She was taken in by a local family and then disappeared from recorded history. Web of Legacies imagines the final harrowing hours aboard the doomed St. John and how a mother eludes fate to save her child, enabling a matrilineage family to plant tender roots in a hostile landscape. Marriott sacrifices her life hoping to save her baby, but her spirit lingers, watching over her progeny. Peggy, Marriott's orphan daughter, finally achieves her dream, a family, but threatens its well-being by overindulging her daughter. Ashamed of her Irish immigrant heritage, Margaret, Peggy's spoiled daughter, must abandon her soulless quest for social status or lose everything, even herself. Caught in a web of legacies, Margot, Margaret's rebellious, dyslexic daughter, must confront her demons while fighting for her life on the storm-lashed ocean ledges that claim the St. John. Now, unless myriad spirit can intervene, the family's debt to fate will be paid. Told across continents in the mid-19th and 20th centuries by four resolute but flawed women as their lives intertwine and collide with each other and a powerful Yankee family, this is a multi-POV tale about mothers and daughters and how the legacies of love and failings echo through generations. It's also a story about women fighting for identity. Emigrant married, illiterate Peggy, social climbing Margaret desperately want to fit in. But Margot, a daring war photographer is determined to break out. The great-great daughter of a sea captain, I grew up in the coastal town where the shipwreck occurred. After earning a master's of education at Harvard Graduate School of Education, I settled into a career in schools and nonprofits focused on needs of children with dyslexia, which runs in my family and as an undercurrent through this novel. Thank you for your consideration, Carolyn D. Cowan. P.S. Content note, character death, war, self-harm, sexual assault. Wonderful, Colleen. Thank you. Cece, would you like to begin with letting us know what you think of the query letter? Let's do it. So I also really love historical fiction, just putting that out there. And I just wanted to tell all our listeners that, yes, it's totally fine if you've queried another agent or even us at PS. This is an educational platform. We're here to give you feedback. I love the comps. Both Homegoing and Of Women in Salt are favorites of mine. I don't think you need Pachinko. It's just the third comp, especially if it's just in terms of how the story unfolds, if it were something else. It's just that, you know, that way you'll, you have two and it's just tighter that way. I have a question about the characters' names, but I feel like it's probably intentional. We have Margot, we have Margaret, we have, I don't know if it's Maraid, Marriott, the protagonist, the first protagonist. It's intentional, right? That they all have really similar names, I think. It's just that I would get confused. But, you know, if it's intentional, keep it. It's it's fine. I always say that the job of a query letter is to make me feel curious. 
the agent, whatever agent is reading. The part that made me curious was the sentence that said, flawed women as their lives intertwine and collide with each other and a powerful Yankee family. That made me think power struggle, power imbalance, some type of social, economical fight going on, which let's face it, is the stuff of all good stories, right? Like all good stories have power imbalance. So I don't know if there's a way for you to flesh that out a little bit more, bring that up. In terms of the paragraph that starts with told across continents, I don't think you need most of that after the whole powerful Yankee family comment I just complimented. I don't think you need it because we understood the women's arcs from the previous paragraph. So you're really just repeating that at that point. And that would make your query letter a little bit shorter, which is always a nice thing. And I would also like to say that the author bio paragraph is great, like absolutely great. Wonderful. Cece, Carly, what was your take on it? All right. So I wanted to touch on one thing. So we've talked about this before on the podcast, the use of the word magical realism. I kind of wanted to come back to that here because I'm not sure what episode it is and some avid listener could probably tell me, but we've talked about the fact that magical realism has its birth basically in South America. And there is a sense of cultural appropriation when we use it outside the context of South America and South American authors. So I would just encourage everybody to just re-educate yourself on that. There's a lot of wonderful articles out there. I just pulled up one today on Vox called 11 Questions You're Too Embarrassed to Ask About Magical Realism. So make sure you educate yourself on that. I just don't want anybody to use that term kind of loosey-goosey because it has a very strong sense of place and meaning and colonization. Okay, next point that I had was overall, I feel like this is an early draft of a query letter. This kind of reminds me of when I'm actually pitching editors and I kind of get all my thoughts out on the page and then I'm trying to really boil down like what is the book I'm trying to sell? This reminds me of an early draft of something that I would kind of be working on because there's a lot of repetition and there's a lot of just, I don't know if the author has connected their own dots about what their story is about. And sometimes that worries me when queries are long is that the author doesn't actually know what their own hook is because it's buried constantly, right? As Cece said, there was a line that that she pulled out and that was at the, you know, on the second page of this query letter. So I'm just not convinced that the author actually knows what their own hook is. And sometimes that just requires, you know, just kind of going over your query again and again and again, you know, getting a third party to look at this. It's, it's so, so important. Another thing that you can do is just go to back cover copy of historical novels. Like we know how hard it is to pitch multi-POV novels. We know how hard it is to pitch historical fiction. And, and make it seem relevant and modern and, and grounded. But the, the examples are out there, right? Just go to back cover copy and flap jacket copy and, and you'll find some inspiration there. The paragraph with all of the characters' names, there's a lot of brackets and, you know, just it feels very synopsis-y. It's very hard on the eyes as well because there's, you know, a character's name, bracket, tell us about them. Character's name, bracket, tell us about them, right? That doesn't feel like flap jacket copy to me. That feels like a synopsis. So honestly, I would probably just suggest, you know, Going back to the drawing board on this, it's not that there's anything bad or wrong. It's just there's really loose repetition that just really needs to be just needs to be cleaned up. That's all. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Cece, will you give our listeners an indication of what's in those opening pages? Let's do it. So we have the protagonist. I think it's Maraid because the author found a really clever way of including a childhood rhyme that had Maraid, Maraid, always afraid, but I don't know. I'll just say Maraid. So we have Maraid on a boat with her husband and baby daughter. They've been at sea for very long and they're tired and they're hungry. And clearly they're a family with a lot of love for each other, a lot of love and devotion. We learn a little bit about her person and personality, like her life situation, how she's beautiful, how she's always been teased for always being afraid as a kid, um, how her husband is fearless and devoted. 
And the captain finally announces that they will dock in Boston Harbor, which is exciting. And it's a very happy moment, so they all cheer. So that is essentially what happens on the pages themselves. Wonderful, Cece. Okay, Kali, what was your take on those opening pages? In the context of knowing what happens in the book, that basically, this gives me a very like Titanic feeling, right? It's like, we know what's going to happen. Literally, shit's going down. <laughs> and we're having this happy moment of they made it across the ocean against all odds, let alone, you know, in their own country, you know, just getting on the boat, you know, they, they've said that these ships are called coffins of death, basically people dying, right? Like we know they've made it so far and they are so close. They can see the harbor. And yet the query letter tells us in history tells us this ship's going down. So I obviously have a huge pit in my stomach reading this. And I thought, I thought these pages were really well done because the query letter was so long. We actually only got three sample pages. The author respected our limits to our five-page guidelines, so we actually didn't get a ton of sample material. But what I read, I I really liked. As Cece said, there's some really subtle moments where the author kind of explains things and in really subtle ways, such as you know the rhyme about the name. I actually don't have you know any notes. It's it's three pages, and and I think they're really strong. Wonderful, Carly. Cece, what was your take on them? First of all, congrats to the author because this is so well written. Excellent, excellent writing. You are very gifted, very talented. My issue is that I absolutely understand what Carly is saying. Yes, pin my stomach. We know that this is going to, you know, end in disaster and that's very emotional. I still wanted more and maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm a sadist, but one thing that occurred to me is that we are getting so much about how the voyage was thus far and and we're inside her head, right? So I think she would be futurizing, especially since she has a baby daughter. So many immigrant mothers spend a lot of time dreaming of the different life their child is going to have because their child is going to belong to the world that they do not belong to and that they are only still arriving at. And so I wanted to see two or three lines about that, because that I think would make it even more heartbreaking. We get stuff on her parents who have passed away. We get stuff on how the voyage was up until now. We get stuff on the weather and the fact that they didn't eat. And this is all great. It belongs there. But I would also add her certainty about the future, because that is very much a part of the immigrant experience. And it's very much a part, I think, of having like a child as an immigrant. And so I think that that's a small tweak in terms of number of lines that you could add, but it would go a long way into adding characterization and also just making the situation even more heartbreaking. That's my note. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Right, let's move to the second query letter. Will you read that for us, Cece? All right. So good morning. I am excited to present my query and the first few pages of my novel for your review based on your love of complex characters and mouth-watering prose. I am confident you will love Pocket Full of Teeth. It is a 66,000-word literary fiction novel that would appeal to women's fiction and general fiction readers who love a good mystery but still want the thickness of broad themes and beautiful imagery. It is written in poetic monthly installments in the Southern literary tradition of Jesmyn Ward and is both beautiful and haunting in its rawness and honesty. The book opens with Paige Pierce, an accomplished author who retreats to the secluded mountains of North Alabama to work on her new novel. 
To get her mind off her past and spark inspiration for her book, Paige turns to the history of her secluded house. Seeing the trauma of the past residents, ghosts start to emerge, bringing up memories of her abusive stepfather and codependent mother, along with the trauma of an unfaithful husband who left her for a younger lover. But Paige isn't as innocent as she seems. As she learns about the house's past, her life slowly unravels revealing dark secrets of her own lurking just under the surface. And as nightmares of the past begin to come to life, Paige has to finally take responsibility for her actions or be swallowed completely by her guilt. When I'm not working on creative projects, I teach writing and give professional development to teachers who'd like to incorporate more writing into their classrooms. I have my BA and MA in English from National University and help run a monthly writer's workshop for my local writing community. I have been published in Stone Coast Review, Running Wild Press, Havoc 2020, Bluntly Lit Magazine, Adelaide Literary Magazine, and Lost Pilots Lit and I was nominated for the Pushcart Prize for Short Fiction in 2020. I currently live in Birmingham, Alabama with my husband and two kids and love going on adventures with my family. Thank you so much for your time, and I look forward to hearing from you soon. Amy Hardy. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Carly, what was your take on that query letter? Okay, so I'm going to start maybe with language. Okay, so this is a literary novel, and the language is pretty flowery, and there's just a lot of it, you know? I think there's a number of words that I would just be kind of cutting from this section, mouthwatering prose. I don't really know what that means. Thickness of broad themes. I don't really know what that means. Beautiful imagery. I know what that means. Beautiful and haunting in its rawness and honesty. It feels like a review of your own work as opposed to you pitching your own work. So those are just things, you know, we don't need. I absolutely love that this person uses the word confidence in theory. They say, I will confident you will love. But in the actual wording of a query letter, you want to kind of project confidence as opposed to use the word confident. So I would probably take that word out too. So I think, you know, just really taking all of the flowery language out of this opening paragraph will really serve you best because what sells us on the book is how you actually use the language, not how you tell us that you use the language, right? That's kind of what's important to me. So I would just be trimming, trimming, trimming through through all of that. Another thing is the hook is pretty buried here, right? To me, the hook is, you know, an author retreats to a secluded cabin only to X, Y, Z. You know, what are the consequences, tension, and conflict? There's a lot of vague language here, like, isn't as innocent, a house is past, revealing dark secrets. And for somebody that is showing themselves to be a literary author, wants to prove themselves as a literary author, these are very generic words and very vague words. So I just don't think that you're doing yourself the most justice here. So clearly there's there's a lot going on behind the scenes, but you're hiding it, right? You're, you're hiding behind it. So I would just really try to tell us exactly what's happening here. So it's kind of the reverse of what you did with your first paragraph, right? I would kind of like swap these two in terms of tone. And then the last paragraph is our author bio. So I kind of made a note like, this is good, this is average, this is fine. You know, there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. Anybody that did attend our retreat will know that Courtney Mom did a great session on author bios. So just make sure if you were a retreat attendee, you use those wonderful resources from Courtney because I think she she did a great job of just, you know, personalizing it and just giving it a little bit of voice. There's nothing wrong with this author bio. It's very straightforward, but it's another opportunity where you could infuse a teensy bit of personality here. Those are my notes. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. I feel like it's the same thing we've said before. 
you know, when it comes to humor. Don't tell agents that you're funny. Let them read their work and figure out for themselves that you're funny. In the same way, you know, don't tell an agent that you write beautifully or gorgeously or whatever. Let them reach that conclusion themselves once once they've read your work. Cece, what was your take on that? One thing I really loved was the title, Pocket Full of Teeth. That is creepy. I love that. I just want to echo what Carly is saying because you're not doing yourself any favors by writing a paragraph, especially a first paragraph, where you're discussing what your book is going to do before it's done that. I don't know that I feel like if I were on the other side of this podcast and I were listening to this, I would be going, well, but what's wrong with bragging? You know, we want to live in a world where writers brag. Absolutely. Yes. Just there's a time and place for everything. And remember that you are not pitching your writing skills. You're pitching your story. Your writing skills is what allowed your story to exist. Yes. But you're still pitching your story. And so let your story do the bragging, you know, let the story itself shine. Everyone watched me fall in love with a query and pages about, I think, a couple of weeks ago. And there wasn't a single line about how beautifully written that was in the query letter. The pages told me that. So it's human nature. Everyone should look look up ultra crepidarianism because it's something that just kind of hits the nail on the head when it comes to like, we don't like being told what to do. We don't, as human beings, that's just not how our brains work. So I also would say that, you know, in terms of the plot paragraph, revealing dark secrets of her own. Okay, awesome. I love secrets. Paige has to take responsibility for her actions or be swallowed by her guilt. I don't know what the actions are. I don't know what the guilt is about. I'm not clear on the central conflict, essentially. And it seems quite interior. I'm a fan of inner life. I'm a fan of literary fiction, but we also need plot. I suspect there is plot, but the writer is keeping us at arm's length, maybe because they don't want to share spoilers, but everything up to the climax is fair in the query letter. So can we reveal what's so bad about her actions? And what she's guilty about, I don't think these things are big reveals in the book itself, but rather elements of the setup, which we should know about. Assuming they are big reveals, then can you tell us what the elements of the setup are so that we can be invested specifically, right, in her journey? I just said specificity again. Everybody drink coffee. Okay. Yes, these are my notes. Wonderful. Cece, thank you. Carly, will you give our listeners an indication of what's in those opening pages? Absolutely. So we start with a letter. The letter is from the University of Alabama at Birmingham. It's a letter to Amy Hardy. And so we're getting the sense that this is a a type of frame narrative or something like that. And so the letter kind of explains that they've done some research, they found this kind of cabin, and they're just saying that, you know, this person can basically go stay at the cabin and, and do some research. And then we flip to being the character being in the cabin. So we start with an epigraph from Adrian Rich, and then we meet our character in the cabin. She is going from kind of under the covers, being cold, going to stoke the fire, taking in the scenery of the cabin itself. We're getting some creepy moments. You know, she's getting a little creeped out, kind of just observing, observing, observing. Then she gets her things together to go into town. So she, I believe she's walking and she gets all of her things together, heads to the general store. She sees some people by the general store. She's going into a town and it says, welcome to Carly's. And then she turns around and spotted her, Carly. Wonderful. Thank you. Okay, Cece, what was your take on those opening pages? Carly's on the manuscript. I thought that the letter was to the author, not to the protagonist, because they say, dear Amy Hardy, and that's the author's name. And I don't know why that's there. 
so, I think you should cut it. So my sense is that, sorry to cut in on your time here, Cece. My sense is that they're trying to make this a frame narrative. And so my notes were going to be that this should be, if this is part of the hook of the actual story, that this is, because it says pocket full of teeth in Amy Hardy novel, that this is a huge part of the hook. I think we're just completely missing something in the query letter. To me, this is a faux letter. You know what I mean? Like this is faux, like placed in the in the context of this to give us a frame for the story to come. And I, so I think this is actually a bit more complex than we're thinking. And if so, why wasn't this mentioned in the query letter? Interesting. Okay. I can get behind that. That does sound really interesting. But yeah, you did not tell us about that, writer. You can't do that to us. That's very confusing. Okay. Okay. So then don't cut the letter because the letter makes sense. But explain the letter in the query letter. I want to say that the first line is great. My mother always told me that secrets come out after sundown. Great, great, great first line. I think that we got a, the wrong file. I don't know this for a fact, but I think the author accidentally sent us the wrong pages because the amount of repetition is insane. I'm talking full sentences repeated, not a word or two. So don't do that because I got distracted. I can't handle repetition. I start seeing the repetition only and not the story. It's something about my brain. I thought there was a lot of moving around and the character was alone. I typically don't recommend starting stories where the character is alone. There's not enough things happening. She climbs out of the blankets. She climbs out of the blankets again. She goes into the kitchen. She moves around. She makes a fire. It's, I don't know. I, I, I got the sense that we were watching a person and not reading a story. There's a lot of description, a room, a house, a town, but nothing happening. So I totally think we should start in, in a different place. I would go back to the drawing board and, and start again if I'm being very, very blunt and very, very honest. And in case the writer is wondering, the repetition, I mean, I'm talking about things like I could almost hear the whispers in the next room as shadows poked their heads out of the caustic boxes and left oily marks as their fingers lingered along the walls. That exact line is said twice, one after the other in two paragraphs. So I'm not talking about small repetition. I'm talking about actual significant things. And then the one thing that got me curious was a line where she says, I wonder if houses have skeletons too. Meaning she has skeletons in her closet, right? Like she has a secret, which is great. So I would lean into that, but frame this opening scene in a different way. I don't know. What did you think, Carly? I had all the same notes about the repetition. Like the oily was mentioned three times, let alone the repetition of the actual sentences. And then bruise was mentioned multiple times. So I agree. Probably got sent the wrong file, which, you know, it happens. If for some reason we didn't get sent the wrong file, you know, just make sure we're really combing things really thoroughly before we send them out on submission, right? Because as you guys know, we we only have a chance to read something once for the first time, right? And then that's so important to always make those first impressions. We forgive a lot. <laughs> I can consider myself very forgiving of so much, but you only get one chance to, to make a first impression, right? And I just, I can't change that. So my first note is about this epigraph from Adrian Rich. So this poem is from 95, which means, you know, it's in copyright. So just a reminder to everybody, like, are you willing to pay thousands of dollars for a quote? Are you willing to pay thousands of dollars for an epigraph? Are you willing to pay thousands of dollars for a line from a song, right? These are very important questions to ask ourselves when we are including epigraphs and quotes from other creators in our work. 
So it's a wonderful homage, but just remember you're, you're paying thousands of dollars out of your own pocket for these quotes in your finished book. Okay, so I have so much respect for literary novelists, you know, like trying to master this craft in a literary sensibility is so incredibly hard, you know, and, and I almost get the same kind of feeling from the query letter in terms of the, the loose repetition that the author is still in these stages of, of figuring out how they want to see the world. And this author's figuring out how they want their character to see the world. And we're, we're getting these like coming in and out of the covers, stoking the fire, observing the room. We only can do these things one time, right? And so the most talented literary authors are the ones that do it right the first time, right? And so you're giving yourself three chances to prove to us that you could do this. We only need you to prove it to us one time. So we really just need to pair all of this back, right? This is just too long in terms of being in this cabin. We need to have this like one moment of observing the cabin, get our stuff, you know, go to the corner store. There were some lines I really liked, you know, I, I just, I don't want to make it seem like we're, we're being really hard on this because, you know, there are some really beautiful things, but every line in literary novels kind of have to be this beautiful, right? And that's kind of why we're being hard on this one per se. So the line that I really liked was, houses sighed as I passed them sagging gently in the middle. Beautiful, right? Beautiful. You know, this person clearly has a command of language that's very strong. It's just that, you know, w- with literary fiction, we just need to be doing that every single time, right? So really, I think we just have extremely high standards for literary fiction. And that's probably why we're, we're coming down on this one. But really, it, it seems like all the building blocks are here. It's just in the context of this podcast in the context of querying, you have to prove it to us, right? And so we're just waiting for you to prove it to us because we know it's there. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. I'll read the third query letter. Dear Carly, since the shit podcast doesn't feature many thriller submissions, doesn't it? We'll come to that just now. I thought you might like to see my supernatural thriller, Novel X, completed 96,000 words, which reads like a mashup of Dr. Sleep meets The Quiet Place. When 11-year-old Benny Fuentes is kidnapped from a playground near Annapolis, Maryland, monster hunter Delana Reese smells a trap, not for the boy, but himself. Reese's fears are confirmed when he tracks and kills the perpetrators, rescuing young Benny, and one of the kidnappers taunts him with her dying breath. See you tonight. Reese, a sentinel, is one of the few people alive who knows that these weren't ordinary criminals. While they appeared human, they were in fact monsters he calls shades. Parasites condemned to darkness that have secretly fed on humanity for centuries. By day, they camouflage themselves in the stolen bodies of men and women. At night, they take their true form, gargoyles winged and black, to hunt humankind. The dying kidnapper's threat can only mean that the shades have marked Reese and the boy and will track them, scent and sound, once the sun goes down. Reese has fought these creatures for 30 years as a secret knight in the church's long war against them, and he will do whatever it takes to protect Benny, especially when he discovers that the boy, like himself, is a sentinel. If he succeeds, they may survive to see the sunrise. If not, gargoyles will feed on their flesh, or worse, turn them into human hosts for more of their kind. Fans of This Savage Song by Victoria Schwab and CJ Tudors, the other people, may also enjoy Novel X. I'm a media analyst in Reston, Virginia. My short fiction has been published in Home Life magazine. Thanks, Carly, for your time and consideration. Paul Wieland. All right, Carly, let's go to you for the critique on that. 
All right, since it's addressed to me, I'm happy to jump in first. So category here, you know, this kind of feels like horror to me. You know, The Quiet Place was definitely horror. So, and we're talking about like an 11 year old possibly being eaten to death. So I would probably call this horror, not thriller, just just as my category FYI. I actually think this query letter is quite well done. Like this author actually really, really knows what their story is about, right? They've built this world. They know their world inside and out. They know how to pitch their world. This is a really hard thing to do. Like I was actually incredibly, incredibly impressed, especially because we're starting off this, you know, this first paragraph with something that seems very straightforward, right? Like a kid is kidnapped, this person tries to solve it. And then all of a sudden the kidnapper in their dying breath says, see you tonight. And then all of a sudden we're like, whoa, I don't know. I was very, very impressed. This felt like really, really great copywriting to me. I was extremely, extremely impressed. And then the next paragraph, right? Like very good summary very succinct. They they understood the transformation of their world in these characters. Definitely feels like horror to me, I will say, still. The only thing I, I want to kind of mention as a general FYI, I think you have to pitch this as horror because we're talking about an 11-year-old possibly being eaten to death. And I don't know of every single thriller editor that I know that might want to read about something horrible happening to a child. So I think you have to pitch this as a horror to just kind of commit to that category and to that genre because I'm just I'm worried if you pitch it as thriller you might scare some thriller editors away potentially I'm not saying you know I'm not trying to make gross generalizations about everybody in the industry but I just want to let you know that some people could have a hard time with children being eaten so I think just being firmly planted in the horror category I think would just help just be really clear about what people are in for the only other thing I would say is in your author bio you say you're published in home life magazine it it feels very at odds with horror that you're published in Home Life magazine. I am so happy that you're getting your work out there and getting published. But for the sake of branding, I would probably just consider taking that out because it really feels at odds with your brand. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. While you were speaking now, I was thinking of my husband's standard response when some virtual stranger yells at us for not having children and asks us what's wrong with us that we haven't had children. And my husband will reply, I like children. I just can't eat a whole one. Cece, would you like to give us your take on the query letter? (laughs) Okay. I think this is really well written. As I was reading the plot paragraph, I started having theories. And this is just a sign that the the author did a really good job. So for example, when we read by day, they camouflage themselves in the stolen bodies of men and women. I was like, oh, is a shade going to take the body of someone they love? You know, imagining like what plot twists lie ahead. And I was wrong. That wasn't one of the plot twists. There was another one that I didn't see coming, which was that Benny is actually a sentinel too. So, so this is really great. Like the plot is the most important part of any query letter. I will always say this, and it's something I firmly, firmly believe, and you did a great job here. So so this is excellent. Wonderful, Cece. Okay, Carly, can you give our listeners an understanding of what's in those opening pages? Okay, so we start chapter one with a mother observing her child at a playground. The mother is in the car, and then the, the child's on the playground. We understand that she's you know observing them playing. We find out on the first page that her child was actually paid to be a companion to another child, and, and so that's that's kind of the situation of, of the playground, but her child goes missing. So she starts getting out of the car. Benny, you know, where are you? A woman who's, you know, a stranger just kind of comes up and says, you need help. And all of a sudden it's like, he's missing. He's 
missing, he's missing, right? She's, she's starting to freak out. Then we have our chapter two. We flip to our kind of hero protagonist, Delano Reese. And so he's in a different situation. It doesn't seem like he's observing this exact moment. He's, you know, observing a van. We think he's kind of chasing these bad guys, essentially. And we kind of start to understand the world a little bit and the, the supernatural elements through him trying to chase these bad guys. Great. Thank you. Okay, Cece, what was your take on the opening pages? I wanted Kara's inner life to match the panic that I imagine she is feeling. We got description and information before emotion. And it's something I've mentioned before. If the emotion is visceral, that hits the person first. And so I would revise this for the emotional life of a mom who just realized that her child is gone. I also didn't think the dialogue was supernatural. Like when she mentions to Darnell, Darnell, where's Benny? He was playing with you, remember? Darnell remembers. I don't think a mom would say that, you know? I think that this is sort of like a little info dumpy. So I would strike that sentence. Also, I think she would have asked them before running around. Because I know she doesn't want to embarrass him, but panic overrides everything. But that's, you know, a minor thing and perhaps she wouldn't. At the end of the first chapter, we have a line. Cara Fuentes, a 33-year-old mother of Benito Eugene Fuentes, answered for the first time that long afternoon. The, the thing she answered was, he's missing. My son is missing. That removed me from her head, which I think is intentional because there's no way anyone would write this if it weren't. So if it's intentional, keep it. My only question then is, is she going to be a POV character? Because I don't think we should start with her POV unless she's going to be a POV character. I think we should start with Reese because I actually have a question about that as, as a whole. Like, is this dual POV, multi-POV? But regardless, I'm pretty sure that Reese is the protagonist, the main, the main character, even if we have more than one. So I would just start with that. And if you have to write Benny missing, because that's what makes sense, then I would try to play around with something. Try omniscient for the, the prologue and make it shorter. Try writing from the playground's perspective. Try writing, put an article of the child that went missing. I don't know. I don't know what it could be, but I don't think that giving us her head and her inner life makes any sense if she's not going to be a player in the story. And then in terms of chapter two, it, it felt like a really different story to me. Like it felt like the inner life made sense, the stakes, the conflict, what was happening, everything just made total sense to me as of chapter two. So perhaps yet another reason why you might want to revise the starting point. And I'm mindful that it's perhaps just one person's opinion, right? Because this is so subjective what we do. But yeah, those are minutes. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Carly? All right. So I definitely agree with Cece. It's always hard to critique when we are, we have no idea where the book is going, right? Like we have an idea of where the book is going. You know, sometimes we say, oh, this book isn't starting in the right place. But with this one, I actually have no idea if this book is starting in the right place or not, because I don't, again, we don't know if it's multi-POV. We kind of get the sense that it might be. I don't know. I also kind of feel like chapter one might be some sort of prologue. And so if it is a prologue, I kind of agree with Cece that writing it in the POV of the playground, that really stood out to me. I think that was a really cool idea. So I think there's a lot of options here to play around with. I do also agree that I felt like chapter two was the start of a, a different book because it also was a lot of info dumping about, you know, what it means to be a sentinel and, and what these bad guys are and tagging them and hive mind. There was a lot of jargon, world building jargon, which we got none of in, in chapter one. So that just really was a shift change that I didn't really, as a reader, I didn't really have time to wrap my head around that, that shift change there. Really, I mean, I got chills in the first line, though no parent wants to believe it. Nothing 
can disappear faster than a child, period. Great first line, you know, and I also really like the setup of this hook of chapter one, that is, where her child was hired to, to be someone's friend. Like, that's very interesting to me. So I thought there was a lot of good things happening here. So that's why I don't really think this needs to be cut necessarily or isn't the right starting place. It's more that I don't really know where this book is going. And that might be a fault also of the creation of this if, if I don't really know where the book is going. It's nice to be surprised for sure. But as a reader, we want to have some breadcrumbs, right, to just, you know, let us know what kind of ride we're in for here. I really actually quite liked that little, he's missing, my son is missing, Cara Fuentes, 33-year-old mother, like the line we've been repeating. I, that made me really feel like this was a prologue and not a chapter. So that kind of solidified my decision there. And and then in our Sentinel chapter, our Reese chapter, I, again, I feel like it was definitely a lot of telling. We also moved into the past. He starts telling us 10 years ago in Southeast DC, right? He's taking us out of the current moment. Really, if we want to stay in the moment, what would happen was all of a sudden his bat signal would go off and then he'd have to like take off to the playground to try and find Benny, right? So I'm just not exactly sure the flow is right here from chapter one to chapter two, but I think this person really knows their world and they've really built it and I give them tons and tons of credit for that. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you to you both. Let's go to today's guest. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. 
Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. Hello, lovely listeners. It is Carly Waters, your co-host of the podcast. I wanted to tell you guys about a webinar that I have coming up. Um, one thing that I just can't stop doing is just teaching. And one of the things that I really miss about the pandemic and traveling and going to conferences is that I don't get to interact with you guys as much. So I've pivoted to virtual. So I'm going to be doing a querying 101, writing your pitch, querying your book and signing with an agent webinar. This is on March 1st at 8 p.m. Eastern. We're going to cover 90 minutes of questions like what's the true purpose of your query letter? What should your structure look like? What do query letters look like from successful authors and best-selling books? What are the do's and don'ts? How do I personally personalize my letter and how do I find the right agent for me? I look forward to seeing everyone there. You can find all the information at carlywaters.com slash webinars, and you'll be able to sign up. I really look forward to seeing you there. If you can't attend in person and you still want the recording, do make sure that you sign up because everyone will get the recording emailed to them afterwards. I look forward to seeing you there. Then are you struggling with getting a particular scene exactly right? Not sure if you've nailed the pacing or tension or if your opening pages are doing the heavy lifting? Or are you uncertain as to whether your characters are coming across the way you would like them to? Or maybe you just like some feedback on your writing in general. Join the Work in Progress workshopping session with me and you'll submit 2,500 words to be critiqued by four other writers while you critique their work at the same time. Now as you 
prepared for this session, you'll learn how to give and receive critique, which is honestly the best way of learning the craft of writing. And during the actual session, you'll share these critiques with one another and get to ask each other questions. I'm running this on the 16th of March at 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. You can book for that on my website, biancamaray.com, under the Courses, Retreats and Services tab. And then if you are hoping to join the Shit No One Tells You About Writing book club, but you weren't able to attend the retreat, we've also now made it available that you can sign up for the book club on the website under that same tab for the first book club that's coming up in March. Today's guest was born and raised in Southern California. She earned her MFA in fiction at the University of Michigan. Her debut novel, The Mothers, was a New York Times bestseller, and her second novel, The Vanishing Half, was an instant number one New York Times bestseller. Her essays have been featured in The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, The Paris Review, and Jezebel. It's my pleasure to welcome Britt Bennett. Britt, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's wonderful to have you here. And for our listeners, you will remember that we recently had an amazing bookstagrammer, Femi Amatade, on the podcast where she interviewed Ashley Audrain. And we got such amazing feedback from all of you that we're having Femi back again. Femi, welcome back. Thank you. Thanks, Bianca, for that introduction. And welcome, Britt. I am beyond excited to be able to speak to you today about The Banishing Half and about your craft as a writer and a storyteller. And I have to admit, this is a pinch me moment for me because you are probably one of the biggest writers out there right now. I do have a lot that I want to discuss with you today. So The Banishing Half was undeniably one of the biggest books of 2020. I believe if you were to walk into a bookshop in any country across the globe, it would probably be front and centre. It was all over social media. Most recently, it was on Insecure, which is one of my favourite TV shows. When you were writing this book, did you envision that it was going to have this kind of global impact and global reach? Or maybe you weren't that surprised because The Mothers, your debut, did so well. It was on the NYT bestsellers list. Maybe you were just thinking... I might have actually written something as special. What were you, what were your thoughts as you were writing it? Uh, yeah, no, it definitely was not that. It was um, it was definitely surprising for me. I mean, I think the response of the mothers was a big surprise. I, I but I think it's a little bit different with the debut because you're not aware of what could go right or what could go wrong. Just everything is just exciting because the book exists. But with the vanishing half, I really didn't know. Whether I knew it was a different book than The Mothers, I didn't know how people were going to respond to it. And and all of that aside, it just, you know, it came out a few months into the pandemic. So at that point, I really had no idea of what the reception to the book would be, if anybody would buy it or care to read or have the attention span, let alone anything about the actual story. So it came out a time in a time in which the world and my own life was so unsettled. So I truly had no idea what what would um, happen to the book. And um, it's been a real whirlwind, I think, just to see the responses to the book. Yeah, and I'm sure that you're so happy. How did you celebrate? Because as you mentioned, it was during the pandemic, it was during lockdown number XYZ, I cannot remember. But I know that if it was me, I would want to go out, have a drink or three or four, meet up with some friends. How did you celebrate when you saw that you were number one? Yeah, I mean, I have told people, but I think it's the first time in my life that I ever had champagne alone because um, a lot of my friends very sweetly sent me bottles of champagne like to be delivered to my apartment. Um, So it was, of course, not as much fun as going out, which is what I would have wanted to do. 
But at the same time, it was so sweet that people sent me bottles of champagne. So I celebrated uh, with some solo drinking and as as many of us were doing during lockdown. But yeah, I was grateful for that, even though it wasn't uh, the celebration that I would have liked to have had on the outside. And hopefully for your next book, you can have a celebration outside. Oh, yeah. I hope by then. Hopefully by then. <laughs> Who knows? (laughs) Fingers crossed. So a lot of people from readers to critics alike have described this book as timely. It was released in the summer of 2020 and that was at the peak of the Black Lives Matter movement. And with themes like race and identity, it was as if you had just written the book literally weeks beforehand and not four or five years ago. And because of this, it was included in so many anti-racist book collections and people were citing it as a book to read when you want to engage in conversations about racism and colorism. And for me, it was educational and it was informative, more so on the concept of passing, because as someone who lives in the UK, and I've spoken to my friends who also live outside of North America, the concept of passing is quite a new concept. I know that it has a long American history, but outside of the US, it is something that's not really spoken about. When you were writing this, did you know that it was going to be used as an educational tool? And did you know that you were going to be introducing a new concept to many people? No, and I, and I think no. I, I mean, I think first of all, I, I never, like it's cool to see this book being taught in schools, for example, or colleges, but I don't consider myself an educator at all. Like I am a person who in writing this book was just trying to ask questions that were interesting to me and certainly not trying to teach anybody anything. So I think it's a little, it's a little surreal, I think, to see, to see the book framed in this way as, as educational. And I think beyond that, um, no, I, I didn't think of the fact that I was going to be teaching anybody about passing. Um, I knew that I had always thought of passing as a very American concept, but I did not, I think I also did not expect um, international audiences to really like fall for this book in the way that they did. I think and it's the same thing with the mothers, the mothers I wrote about a small like a you know a pretty kind of obscure California city and some black kids who lived there and I didn't think that I would go all over the world talking about that book and the same thing with with The Vanishing Half I wrote about this town that does not exist on a map and I did not expect to be doing press in all of these different countries um, and readers from language readers who speak languages that do not even have a word for colorism are reading this book and, and talking about it. So I wasn't expecting any of that, but um, and I'm glad. I think if you go into something with the burden of having to explain or teach, that's just like an unfair pressure that you've placed on yourself. So I think it's good that I didn't think of it like that. I think I just focused on these particular characters and whatever the reader took from it was not my responsibility. I think that's how you have to go into it or else it's just too much pressure. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that you did not think of an audience outside of America. So would you advise authors and writers to think of a specific target audience as they are writing their book or they shouldn't think about a specific target audience? Well, I mean, I think that I... I think I do have an imagined reader. Like I I think that it can be helpful to, you know, for example, like writing towards an intelligent reader. I think that that's a thing that we don't talk about enough. And George Saunders talks about this a bit, but just like when you are revising, imagine that the reader is smarter than you. And now what is the book that you write? Um, Because I think often when we're writing, we feel like we have to over explain, we have to translate, we have to simplify it. 
Like, no, your writing gets better if you imagine that you are writing to an intelligent person. So that's one thing that I think about all the ways, like with this book, where I'm like, I'm not going to stop and explain everything. I'm going to assume that I'm writing towards someone who's intelligent, who understands what's happening. And if they don't understand the context, they will look it up. And that's, that's where my responsibility ends. So I think that's one thing. But I think also, I mean, I think if you write towards your... Like if you try to write towards the largest audience possible, I think often that can be, that can kind of flatten the work. I think that often it can lead you to to thinking, you know, it's like sitting down and writing a pop song and you're like, I'm trying to write a number one hit. Like there's something about that. Like if it happens, that's great that it happens. But I feel like trying to be so universally appealing can flatten your work. So I always just tell people, be as, be as specific as possible. I think it's the specificity that people respond to. And readers are smart. People, we are all capable of understanding outside of our own immediate context. We are all capable of understanding what's happening. And if we don't have enough background, we can Google. So I just tell people to write as specifically as possible. And the rest, you know, will come when it comes. And it's actually funny that you say that because I recently read a book and um, it was set in a culture that's different from my own. And after every term that might be foreign to many people, they would put in brackets the meaning of it. And I was thinking, no, people can go and Google it. People can go and research it. So I think it's quite quite good advice that, that you've just said that. And so with any book that has been read by so many people from different walks of life, from different ethnicities and cultures and ages, no matter how well loved the book may be, there will always be one or two negative reviews. So do you read book reviews and how do you handle negative book reviews if you were to come across it? Do you continue to read on or do you stop and pause? I mean, I, I pretty much believe that reviews are for readers and not for writers. I don't think reviews really have much to do with me, whether they're positive or negative. So I don't read most of them. Um, I read some of the like some of the big ones you kind of have to read. Like you have to read New York Times if you get reviewed in the New York Times. Um, you have to read that one, you know. So some of the big ones I've read, but yeah, I feel like I don't feel like reviews are really for writers. I think they're for readers. I try not to get too high and I try not to get too low. So, and, and it's also, I think it's, I think you also have to know what type of person that you are because there's some people I know who want to read every review. They find it really instructive and helpful. But I think for myself, I always knew that like a bad review is going to make me feel way worse than a good review is ever going to make me feel good. And I knowing that I was like, it's great to read a good review, but at the expense of reading the bad review, that's going to make me feel really bad. It's not worth it. So then I think, you know, I think you have to find ways to kind of protect your boundaries. I always tell people like we are writing in such a weird time where at any given moment, you know, people can tweet at you what they think about your book. They can write you on Instagram, tag you in something, um, email you. There's so many ways for readers to get in contact with writers nowadays to tell you exactly what they think about your book, um, which is sometimes nice when people have nice things to say, but also sometimes people don't like what you're doing, which is their right, but it's not, I, but I don't feel forced to engage with that because you know, it's like I get on Instagram because I want to see what my friends are doing. I want to see cute dogs. I want to see, you know, funny memes. I don't get on Instagram because I want to hear whether people like how bad somebody thinks I am at my job. <laughs> and I think that if and I think that if everybody like if every time everyone got on Instagram, they got like performance reviewed, it wouldn't be fun. So I try to find ways to create those boundaries because I think it's important for readers to talk to other readers about the books they're reading and what they think about it. And I fully support, you know, whether people love my book or hate it, but I personally do not want to directly engage with it because I just think that would uh, make my life quite miserable. 
And it's actually interesting that you said that you go on Instagram to engage with your friends, not necessarily to read book reviews. But because of the success of both of your books, your following has gone up and there is more of a spotlight and attention on you. Do you have any tips for any authors who may find themselves in a similar kind of situation, whereas beforehand they may not have had a large following and then now suddenly people are so interested in them, they're interested in their personal life, they want to engage with them, they want to talk about their books, but the author wants to separate the two. Do you have any tips on how an author should deal with that? Yeah, I mean, I think creating boundaries is important. Um, You know, it's like, that's why some people have like the professional account and the private account or... They have, you know, close friends list or whatever that you need to create that boundary because it is strange to go from using social media to talk to your friends and then it becomes this professional space for you. It becomes like a workplace. And going from most of the people who follow me know me to most of the people who follow me, I do not know. There is something strange about that. So I try to be very conscientious of what I post. I try not to post anything too personal or, you know, like not wanting to reveal like, you know, where you are. I mean, no, I think nobody should do that. It's like, it's, you know, it's dangerous to like tag yourself in a place because you don't know who could see that. It's just stuff like that. I think that's the, those are the types of things that I sometimes think about. Not that I have stalkers, but it's just the idea of being more exposed and more vulnerable, I think is um, very strange. So I think creating boundaries, you know, finding ways to realize, to understand like what you feel comfortable with, like how you want to engage and not feeling like at first in the beginning, I used to respond to everybody who would message me and I would say, thank you. Thanks for reading the book. And I feel bad that I don't do that anymore, but it just became so, uh, it became work. It became work every time I went online and I just realized that that wasn't sustainable for me. So I think just figuring out those boundaries of what you feel comfortable with and how much you want to share and how much you want to engage. Because I always tell people that the book, the book is the product. I'm not the product. Like I'm not selling myself. Uh, what people buy is the book. And that's all that as a reader, that's all that you have. That's all that you are entitled to access to. So I don't feel any pressure to provide more than that. I just want to, yeah, you know, talk about books and talk to my friends and yeah, see dog videos. Like that's what I want to do when I'm online. So boundaries, that's really important. Remember that you as an author, not the product, the book is the product. Having such a successful book, does that influence what you will write next? Do you feel pressure to write something similar to The Vanishing Half because it had done so well? Because thinking back to the mothers and making some comparisons to The Vanishing Half, I would say that they are more different than they are similar, in my personal opinion. So they do have the similarities in terms of the fact that they are set in small communities. So you have Mallard and then you have the privileged gated community that Stella was living in and then both books give talk about decision making and how the choices that we make have such an impact on our future and those around us and it's also about families but there are some massive differences but having now had a a bestseller does that influence what you'll write next do you feel pressure that oh I must write something similar or do you feel like actually I want to write, write something completely different to show my range perhaps yeah, I mean, I think I was lucky with The Vanishing Half because I started that book before I The Mothers was published. So when I started The Vanishing Half, I had no idea what the reception to The Mothers would be. So I was just writing that book purely. That was the book I wanted to write. 
And with the next book that I'm writing, I also started this book before The Vanishing Half came out. So there wasn't a feeling of, oh, The Vanishing Half was so successful and now I need to like run it back. And I also didn't want to write in a way that was like, let me write something completely left field because I want to be so different than The Vanishing Half. I think the new thing I'm working on is different than The Vanishing Half, but I think that I always want to challenge myself. I always want to explore something new and keep it fresh and interesting. And I always, but at the same time, I don't want to be so caught up on trying to do the opposite of what I did before that I don't do what I want to do. So I think that the there can be pressure with having a book that does well. I think there is a type of pressure that that creates. It creates certain expectations on you. But I think the flip side of that is that it also gives you some freedom. I think that it gives you kind of some freedom to do what you want to do next because you feel... I mean, I don't know. I feel like I have less to prove um, than if The Vanishing Half hadn't done well. I feel like it gives you a little bit of freedom to say, okay, I did this thing. People liked it. Now I'm going to do whatever I want to do. (laughs) So you said that um, The Vanishing Half is a bit different to what you're working on right now. Is that what you said? So are you able to tell us a little bit about what you're working on or not yet? You're not allowed to say anything. Um, I mean, it's it's still really early on. It's it's a book about music, but it's different. It's very different structurally. It's very different. Um, I think, you know, The Vanishing Half was about these, um, you know, small town and the small community. And then the world of this next book is very larger than life. Um, so it is a really different vibe. Um, and it is challenging in some new ways. But I think that's exciting. I think that's what you want when you sit down to write something. You want to you challenge yourself in a new way. And I know I'm excited. I know that a lot of people who'll be listening to this, they'll be excited as well. So looking forward to reading that when it does come out. Uh, so you spoke a little bit about the structure of The Vanishing Hearth and it's a, it is a multi-generational novel. Why did you choose to portray those themes such as race, identity, decision making, shape shifting? Why did you choose a multi-generational novel and why twins as well? Um, well, to the second part of your question, I think I always knew that it would be about twins and I think there was something really fun about writing a book about identity that is involving twins. I think it raises questions of nature versus nurture and how our personalities are formed. But I think it also, to me, was always absurd to imagine these identical twins who have the exact same face uh, experiencing the world in two very different ways because of how they are identified racially. And... To your first part of your question, no, I did not know that it would, uh, I didn't know it would be multi-generational when I started it. I thought the book would just be about the twins. So the idea of following the twins into the next generation kind of crept up on me, but it became something that I was interested in because I wanted to know how the choices that these women make affect their children and, and will trickle down throughout the next generations and how that family will continue splintering in different directions. And because it is multi-generational and twins are the main characters, do you think that's what sets it apart from other books that discuss passing? So the books that come to mind are Nella Larson's Passing and Imitation of Life. Do you think that's what maybe makes it a little bit different from those books? I mean, I think a little bit because I think in most passing narratives, the idea of having a child is a very dangerous prospect. You know, this idea... Um, And I think that comes up in passing where, um, you know, Claire talks about like her anxiety when having this child that she was so worried the child would be dark. So I think there are are many passing stories where somebody has the child, but I don't know um, if a lot of them kind of follow what that life is like for that child. So I think that was something that I had a lot of fun thinking about for both of the, the cousins, but in particular Stella's daughter. Um, I wasn't expecting to write in her point of view, but once I did, it was really fascinating to me to imagine what life is like for this person who always believed her racial identity to be very simple and straightforward and something that she doesn't really think about. 
and then learning that her own heritage is a lot more complicated than she realized it would be. So it was fascinating to read those things in a book and I'm fascinated to see how it will play out on screen because rights have been sold. So congratulations on that. I do want to ask you a question. I'm not sure if you can actually answer this question, but I'm going to go ahead and ask it anyway. Do you have actresses in mind to play the twins? Uh, So for example, someone like Meghan Markle, I think she would actually fit the twin role quite well. If you were to pick some actresses, who would you pick? Yeah, I'm I am. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure she's free. Um, yeah, no, I, I, Meghan Markle has come up a lot, weirdly, which is, I, I agree with you. I think she definitely fits it. But just the idea of her, my friend is just like, no, this will be like her Emmy vehicle. Like she wants an Emmy vehicle. <laughs> I'm just like, I don't know that she wants that. But um, if she did, it would be great. Somebody mentioned Mariah Carey, which was also just amazing to imagine her wanting to do this. But of course, would be welcomed with open arms. No, I mean, I don't know that I have a dream cast. I think that um, I like hearing people's suggestions, which are always really fun to, to hear. But I think, you know, as, as much as I would be thrilled to work with some veteran actors that I really love, I'm really excited by the possibility of us discovering some new actors. You know, I think about like the twins when they're teenagers, like who would, who will play them? I don't know. Um, but there's something really exciting to think about this being a launching for somebody's career, you know, an actor who hasn't yet been discovered. So I have no dream cast. I'm just excited for whoever wants to come and be a part of this. Um, But I love seeing people's suggestions. And I love imagining um, some of these extremely famous women wanting to be involved with this project. I do think that Meghan Markle would want to take on the role. I mean, I don't know her personally, but I just, there's just a feeling within me that if it was offered to her, I don't think she would say no. But okay. Well, look, maybe maybe somebody listening to this podcast has a direct line to Meghan Markle that they could ask her because I would I would love to have her. <laughs> Um, So I think many people would categorise The Vanishing Half to be not maybe the most joyful book. Um, I think with topics such as colourism and racism, that it was it's quite a heavy book, but there were some tender moments, there were some joyous moments. And for me, that came in the form of early and Desiree's relationship. It wasn't necessarily a conventional relationship and it definitely wasn't smooth sailing, but there definitely were some sweet moments. Was it important? to you to include some tender-hearted and joyous moments in a book that is quite heavy yeah I mean I think it's important to have that tonal uh those tonal fluctuations because I think if you have just one tone the whole book it just becomes so flat and as a reader everything just kind of washes over you like it doesn't hit the same because everybody is miserable all the time um so to have those moments of joy I think are important because it sort of jolts you um it gives you this break it lets you relax as you're reading it but I also think it it heightens everything that comes before and after it it makes every all the other emotions are amplified if you have that difference so yeah I mean I think that's very important and I also think you know I think there's something really dehumanizing about depicting lives that are only filled with suffering so I never want to write books that are only about people who you know because everyone's all of our lives, no matter how difficult they are, have their moments of lightness and have their moments of humor and uh, have their moments of joy. So I, to me, there's something realistic about it, but also I think it's useful from a craft perspective because it really amplifies all the emotions that are surrounding it. And you actually took the words out of my mouth in that it is more realistic when you see the highs and the lows of life. Thank you. Well, Britt, that is actually all we have time for today. There were a lot more questions. We definitely could have spoken about The Vanishing Half and your craft for 
hours. Um, but thank you so much for speaking with me today. I'm sure everyone would love to hear from you again in the future. Um, yeah, we're looking forward to seeing what you come up with next. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists, while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists, while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.